You're about to listen to Office Hours with me, Georgia Howe. This is a weekly companion series to PragerU's popular five-minute videos, where I explore various political and cultural topics with PragerU experts, asking questions and digging deeper to bring you perspectives that you may not hear in a traditional college classroom. To watch the video version of this series, click on the link in the description or go to dailywire.com. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm Georgia Howe with The Daily Wire. Today, we sit down with the host of The Hugh Hewitt Show and president of the Richard Nixon Foundation, Hugh Hewitt. His new PragerU video is titled Watergate, where he talks about the infamous scandal that rocked the American public 50 years ago, the legacy of which still impacts political discourse today. Let's jump right in. Hugh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Georgia. Good to be here. So it's not every day that you hear someone really defend President Nixon, so I'm kind of interested to hear your perspective. I get the sense that you don't feel like history has been totally fair to President Nixon. What is it that you think um, is sort of lost from the, the public opinion today about, about President Nixon? Well, history always compresses the record, Georgia, into a five-minute uh, conversation like we have for PragerU. Or even a two-minute uh, uh, conversation between you and me, or a two-hour visit to the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda. Whatever people do, they still are only going to get a tiny fragment of the lived history. I did not know President Nixon until after his resignation. I went to work for him in 1978. But since then, I've had this my third tour of duty as president of the Nixon Library. And I know the full story. Uh, when Dennis offered us the opportunity to present uh, our point of view in a truncated way, I jumped at that. And hopefully it will encourage people to, as we're about to get flooded with Watergate anniversary pictures and documentaries and films and uh, platform streaming series uh, by George Clooney and Woody Harrelson and everyone else, hopefully these five minutes will ground them in a little bit of reality. I'm kind of interested to hear, you know, maybe like your top one or two things that you feel like just factually are incorrect that have been floating around ever since then that you'd like to correct. The most important myth about Watergate is that President Nixon had knowledge of the break-in before it occurred. He did not, and even the most anti-Nixon historians will agree that he did not. The second probably most overlooked thing is that the commentators who are most frequently seen, including John Dean more than anyone else, are deeply in implicated in the cover-up, in the crimes, and in the scandal, and yet they evaded accountability uh, by and large in the history's uh, recollection of it, by virtue of their getting ahead of the story and planting themselves firmly on their side of events, which is a narrative, like everything else is a narrative. Uh, what we have at the Nixon Library is indeed a narrative on top of history. And when the National Archives and Record Administration merged with the Nixon Foundation, they immediately turned it over to an anti-Nixon zealot by the name of Tim Naftali, who tore out the Watergate exhibit that President Nixon had designed, substituted his own rather bizarre image of Watergate, his own rather screwy history of Watergate. And we can't touch it because it's federal property now. Uh, hopefully, the PragerU video and people who are decently read will begin to get a full picture, not just of Watergate, but of Nixon and his achievements, which are more and more coming into perspective. So I didn't realize you worked with President Nixon did you, I mean, you made a pretty firm claim there that he did not know about the burglary. Do you know that from personal conversations with him? How do you know that? 
It's a great question, George. And no, in two years of working with him in 1978 through 80, I never discussed Watergate with him. That's because he was forward looking at that point. We were working on a book called The Real War, which came out in the middle of the 1980 election when President Reagan won. And it's all about national security policy and foreign policy. So while I spent you know, hours and hours with him every week working on the book and rewrite and edit and that sort of thing, uh, never discussed Watergate with him. My point of view on Watergate is fashioned from the history's record, the tapes themselves. I don't think anyone argues that Nixon knew the break-in was going to happen before the break-in occurred. And in fact, I believe it to be the case that he was quite angry when he heard about it and declared on the spot, what a stupid idea. Because it is a stupid idea. Nothing is kept at the Democratic National Headquarters. It's all at the campaign headquarters. But most people will concede to that. Uh, there are lots of other misunderstandings about Watergate or what goes under Watergate, but it's become shorthand for scandal. And to the extent that uh, we can get that shorthand to at least be an essay long review, we're happy. So in the video, you state that the country fundamentally changed in the wake of the Watergate scandal. In what ways did the country change after Nixon resigned? Uh, first of all, the, the media became Woodward and Bernstein. Now, Bob Woodward is now my friend. I know Bob and I... Uh, I've had a lot of conversations with him over the, the last four or five years on the air and off the air and airplanes and things like that. He became a folk hero, as did Carl Bernstein. Woodward held on to it. Bernstein did not. And Bob is probably the reporter of his era because of Watergate. But not only did it improve his career trajectory, it changed the image of the American reporter in the minds of the public from being a craftsman to being an archetype and a crusader. And typically, journalism is a craft. It's not a profession. Some people do it well. Other people don't do it well at all. But Woodward and Bernstein, all the president's men, turned it into an industry that, uh, it, it, whether or not it deserves its reputation, that's what it did. It began to attract young talent like you, want to be journalists, want to be in media. That's new after Watergate. It also changed the balance of power in Washington, D.C., fundamentally and forever with the passage of the War Powers Act with the rise of the Anti-Imperial Congress, with the uh, uh, rethinking of the Presidential Powers Act and uh, the impoundment ability. So it just changed America's trajectory dramatically away from victory in Vietnam to ultimately defeat. And uh, it obscured Nixon's record so that people will say two things about Richard Nixon, Watergate and China. Well, there are actually seven key things about Nixon, the Soviet Union, China, Vietnam, and the Yom Kippur War the environmental policy, the uh, National Cancer Act and Title IX. I like to talk about all of Nixon, including the warts, but nowadays it's just shorthand China and Watergate. Neither of them are well understood. So retroactively, I feel like Nixon is painted somewhat as a one-dimensional or two-dimensional villain to most school children. But what's kind of interesting is even, you know, immediately after the Watergate scandal, he was elect he was reelected in a landslide. So there must have been something else that he was tapping into that the American public was interested in. What was it that uh, drew people to want to vote for Nixon? Uh, the silent majority is his most famous speech when he appealed after the invasion of Cambodia to the great silent majority in America to stand by him. By the time of uh, 1972, although you're right, the break-in had occurred, it had not become a scandal. And indeed, it was distanced from the White House. People did not begin to understand until after uh, the election that the White House could be involved, that indeed uh, Chief of Staff Haldeman, Senior Advisor Ehrlichman might be involved, that John Dean. The Watergate hearings are uh, in the summer of 1973, a full year, almost a year after the election. 
that's when the worm begins to turn and it begins to erode under Nixon. And of course, by the following August 9th, he's out of August, off, office. And you referenced the British historian Paul Johnson, and he was quoted as saying, quote, the media's aim was to use publicity to reverse the electoral verdict of 1972. Was that a retrospective claim or was that something that was commonly felt by Nixon voters at the time? I think it was felt by at least a quarter of the population. And uh, President Trump once told me that if President Nixon had had social media and Twitter, he would have survived in office. And I believe that's probably the case. But when 99% of the media hates you and they control 100% of the means of communication, your political ability to withstand that is limited at best and eventually it eroded. Uh, had Nixon been um, working in the era of Fox News, talk radio, and Twitter, I don't think he would have left office. He would have fought back in the way that President Trump fought back against both of his impeachments. So what was it about Nixon that was so off-putting to 98, 99% of the media? I always begin my interviews on the radio show with a new guest by asking them, was Alger Hiss a Soviet spy? And the reason I do that, it seems so out of left field, is because it tells me if they know anything about history and if they know anything about Nixon, if they know anything about the truth. Alger Hiss was a Soviet spy. Nixon uncovered him. He also had to be the fair-haired child of the establishment. FDR's young, smart, uh, uh, much admired. He was a Soviet spy. And uh, we Nixon found it out in the pumpkin patch episode in the House on American Committee's Affairs uh, presentation and hearing. And ever from that time forward, even when he became vice president, this was when he was a member of the House, he ran a really tough campaign against Helen Gahagan Douglas in, in 1950. He ran with Ike in 52, a checker speech. He was always hated by the media, always hated by the East Coast establishment, especially the the, the Ivy League uh, literati and the sort of Washington, D.C., Georgetown said he called them. Uh, and so that animus was long, long standing. Her block is a famous cartoon cartoonist from that era who had a very tricky dick. He came up with tricky dick. And so that it was a long running war between President Nixon and the media. And as he told David Frost, he gave them a sword and they used it. And he did make enormous misjudgments in Watergate, which he freely admitted. I'm just positing that most of America don't know what happened. They should come to the library and find out from the hole in the round and understand it more completely. And so you're, are you kind of suggesting that it was like a cultural thing that these people, the East Coast elites just felt culturally disconnected from Nixon? I mean, I understand from your video, you said he did not have an Ivy League degree. I mean, was he a small town person? What was it that was like so off-putting to them? Uh, Nixon was very much a small town person. Uh, if anyone visits the birthplace and they'll see that he grew up in this tiny little 900 square foot house and his father was a... a failed farmer and a small store operator, and, and his mother was a Quaker, and of his five brothers, two of them died young. I mean, it's a very hard scrabble story. And he went to Whittier, even though he had a scholarship to Harvard, he still couldn't afford to go. And then he went to Duke Law School, and he put himself through in the Navy and the whole thing like that. But the animus of the media wasn't because he was small town California, it's because he got his. And then from 1948 through 19. 62. He fought an unending campaign against them, and they did not like him, and they'll be the first, the honest ones will admit, they hated Nixon. You think Trump hatred is bad? Uh, the press conferences from 1974 will make your, your eyes roll back in your head. Sam Donaldson, the rest of them yelling at Nixon. It was like 
jackals on a carcass. Nixon had this really incredible quote, I think it was from 1972, where he says, quote, never forget the press is the enemy, the establishment is the enemy, the professors are the enemy. The professors are the enemy. Write that on the blackboard 100 times and never forget it. So he sounds almost like a time traveler. What was he pointing to in 1972, specifically at those professors? That what, what, like, what was he concerned about? He was concerned about Harvard and Yale. He, even though his White House was probably the smartest White House ever, and even though among its members most prominent was Harvard's Henry Kissinger and Harvard's Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and he had Yale's Ray Price. I don't know where Bill Sapphire went, but they, it was all Ivy League around him, and he hired me out of Harvard. He hired all sorts of people out of Harvard and Yale over the course of his career. But the faculty of Harvard and Yale is what he's referring to that, meaning the professor. He's not talking about Ohio State or mm -hmm. uh, the local community college or University of Michigan. At that time, the disease of academia being hard left was limited to New Haven and Cambridge. Now it's everywhere. Uh, so what he identified, I wouldn't call them enemies, what he identified as the hard left nature of the faculties then uh, has now spread in those places, has now spread across the country. He does sound like a time traveler. Yeah, I mean, was he kind of pointing to, was this during the Red Scare period or was this a little bit before? No, it's after. It's the Red after, Scare okay. occurs in the 50s. Uh, his point of view about the media became fixed probably midway through the 50s. And it got, in the 1960, he thought the 1960 campaign, it was not a fair representation of him versus Kennedy. He thought that the Harvard faculty was in love with the Harvard kid, Kennedy, and the Massachusetts thing kicked in and the Yale thing. Kennedy's a Harvard guy. Uh, it's, it, it pulsed through Nixon very much. And it wasn't envy. It was simply a good calculation of who was with him and who was against him, regardless of the merits of the issue. And it didn't matter that he had Henry Kissinger and Daniel Patrick Moynihan in his team, uh, speaking for him, uh, crafting the world. What mattered is they just didn't like Republicans, and they especially didn't like the guy who got hissed. So you mentioned Trump a couple of times. What similarities do you see between, you know, the Trump kind of scandals and the Nixon scandals? First of all, they were friends, Georgia. There's an exhibit that we just opened up at the library now that we're reopened after the virus that is about the friendship between Donald Trump and Richard Nixon, uh, which had its roots in the fact that Richard Nixon moved back to New York after San Clemente and the exile years from 1974 to 1980. And he would run into Trump everywhere after his wife, Mrs. Nixon, saw him on the Donahue show, saw Trump on the Donahue show and said, you know, that man's going to be president. So RN wrote a letter to Trump. What saying, year was that that she said that? Uh, it's about, I think it's 1989. Wow. Uh, Mrs. Nixon says you're going to be president. And of course, Donald Trump loved that and sent back. They have this correspondence. It's amusing as can be. Mostly it's about football and the New Jersey generals, which the future president would discuss with the former president because he was at that time uh, uh, a football team owner. And then they'd run into each other at the swanky restaurants around New York. And they just became pen pals. What do they have in common? Uh, great distrust of the media. Uh, a certain willingness to brawl. Uh, Trump's 10 times the brawler that Richard Nixon is. They have some extreme dissimilarities. Richard Nixon, uh, I, some people argue he's the smartest president ever. Some will say Woodrow Wilson. Smart does not mean wise, but smart meaning a capacity for information and a retention of what you've read. I, I, I've never seen his equal, and I've known four or five of them now. Uh, he, he simply had a genius brain. This is your Belinda that has the Nixon Library. Is that where you are or no? Well, I go back and forth around the country. I'm an East Coast broadcaster from 6 to 9 in the morning. Okay. So when I'm in California, it's 3 to 6 in the morning. That's kind of a tough shift. 
So I, I try and stay on the East Coast, somewhere on the East Coast, often within the Beltway. Uh, but I am when something big is happening at Yorba Linda, like Secretary of State Pompeo's speech at the library, basically repudiating the opening to China last summer, I'll be at the library. And if anyone goes out to Orange County to go to Disneyland, save a day for the Nixon Library. Absolutely. Where can people find you online? Uh, HughHewitt.com and uh, on Twitter at Hugh Hewitt, on Facebook, Hugh Hewitt. It's, it's, uh, I got all the names early because there's no one else named Hugh Hewitt. Thank God I want to name Bob Jones. All right. Well, that's the end of today's Office Hours. Make sure to tune in next week for our conversation with a new PragerU presenter. I'm Georgia Howe. Thanks for tuning in. As a reminder, if you'd like to see the video version of this show, or if you haven't seen this week's PragerU 5-Minute Video, make sure to click on the link in the description below, or head over to dailywire.com. We'll see you next Monday for a new interview with another PragerU presenter. (music) 